The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Next one. Good morning. Today is one of those um, unique Sundays. Uh, we, we've been in the book of Galatians for a few weeks, and uh, traditionally, uh, when one of us is asked to preach in uh, Pastor Terry's place, we just carry on within the book. But when I received the schedule from Pastor Terry, on, uh, on May 5th, it said, Open Sunday. And that meant there was no scripture assigned to that Sunday. And so I was pretty excited because you know, I could preach from anywhere in the Bible. And I was telling my family this, and Rachel, who's our youngest daughter, she said to me, Dad, that means that you have the whole Bible to preach from. And my elation was, uh, was short-lived at that point because I realized that there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 1,189 chapters and there are 31,173 verses. How do you pick out of that to preach on? The other, the other quandary I had was that on Easter Sunday, uh, Pastor Terry wore a t-shirt up here. <laughs> I'm sure you all remember that. And after I had gotten over my initial judgment of his uh, wardrobe, um, <laughs> I thought, you know what, maybe it's time for me to loosen up a little bit too. And I will wear a t-shirt when I'm up here. And so I went through, <laughs> you already know this. <laughs> Some people already know me well enough. <laughs> and so I went through my stack of t-shirts and I realized that every single one of them had the logo of at least one of these up there. <laughs> And so I thought, that is highly inappropriate. <laughs> so no t-shirts for me for a while, unless I can borrow Pastor Terry's holy t-shirt with all the scripture and stuff on it. All right. Well, after, uh, after spending some time in, in the Bible and, and looking at the life of our church, I feel that the message this morning is very relevant for our church where we are. And we're going to look at... Uh, the book of Revelation, we're going to look at the seven churches that are in the second and the third chapter of the book. And what we want to do is we want to look at them and see what they teach us as a church in the 21st century. Would you please stand and read with me from Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. We're not going to read the letter to all the seven churches. We're just going to read the first letter because that's the one we will be concluding with. Revelation 1, verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Why is it important or necessary for our church to look at these seven churches today? And part of the reason is that we're in a new season of ministry. We've changed our physical addresses, but with that change, the possibilities of ministry have grown. How we reach out within our community has changed. How the community reaches out to us has changed. And so we're in a season of change. We're also changing as a church itself. You know, pretty soon over the next few years, old guys, old folks like me are going to take a back seat. We're going to step out of the spotlight, if you will. And younger men and women are going to step in and lead this church and lead this congregation. There will be a change. There will also be a change in the congregation. People will leave this earth and go to heaven as babies are being born into new families. People will leave this church for various reasons, and people will come and join this fellowship over the years. The makeup and the face of this congregation will change as well. And then thirdly, the world around our church is changing. We're becoming a multi-faith society, and the church is not the center of the society anymore. It is not the only option available to the community anymore. There are also political, cultural, and social changes that are happening around us, over which sometimes we have very little control. And so in the midst of all this change, what is a church to do? When the only constant in the life of a church is change, what is a church to do? 
And may I suggest to you that when we face such changes, the wisest course of action that we can take is to anchor ourselves to our firm foundation. And that's what we're going to do today. There are many people in this church who are not familiar with the history of this church, but it is also a good reminder for us as a church family to know what a church is about and what the seven churches in Revelation teach us. So we're going to look at this. The book of Revelation is a, is a fantastic book. It's, it's written by Apostle John when he was in prison on, on the island of Patmos. He got the front row seat to the end of time and the events that will happen at the end of time. And he is tasked by Jesus Christ to write these seven churches, letters that are specific to each church in that time and in that place. And yet, in God's sovereignty, the content of those letters spans time. 2,000 years later, we can look at those letters and know that God is speaking to us in those letters as well. Two of the five churches are not rebuked at all. They are commended by Jesus Christ for their service and for their faithfulness, while the other five are rebuked because they've lost their mission and their commitment to Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we look at these seven churches, we're going to look at two foundational truths that are, that are absolutely essential for defining the identity of a church. And then we're going to look at seven lessons from these seven churches. So let's, uh, let's start with that. The second foundational truth, and I know all you math whizzes are thinking, well, what happened to the first one? We'll come to that in a second. But the second foundational truth that a church must adhere to and must be absolutely certain about is that a biblical church must learn to hear and discern what the Holy Spirit says. That is absolutely vital. This is the second foundational truth that a church must be founded on. And in modern church, I think in some cases, we've relegated the Holy Spirit to the role of the supporting actor in the Trinity. And we forget who he really is. I think it will do well for our church to remember and recognize who he is. The Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. He is a third person in the Trinity. He is fully God, just as much God as God the Father and as much God as God the Son. He is co-equal in every respect with God the Father and God the Son. He is eternal in nature and has always been. Along with God the Father and God the Son, He is fully active and engaged in the affairs of this universe and all creation. Whether He appears to Moses in a burning bush or He appears over the heads of the disciples in, in, in tongues of fire that appeared like fire, or if He is the strength of Samson, He is God who indwells us. And when a, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. From that point on, it is He who is our companion, He who is our guide in our faith journey. He is the one who works with us and in us to transform us to be more like Jesus. In all of these seven letters that, that were written to these churches, there is one phrase that is consistent across all seven letters. And the phrase is this, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is a directive from Jesus Christ. And for us as a church in 21st century, 
that directive still stands. It is only through listening to the Holy Spirit that we can actually know what our function is and what we are supposed to do and what we are called to do. And the neat thing about how Holy Spirit operates and works is that He works in the life of the individuals, in every person's life who's sitting in a chair in this room. And as each person is transformed and they come together in the bigger body of believers, there is unity because the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in every person's life. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is despite uniformity. And that is not a man-made thing. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. It starts with the individuals, and then it bears fruit in the body. Francis Chan says this about the, the need for a church's relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says this, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get the churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Because if we choose not to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, if we're not tuned to his voice, then there is so much noise around us that his voice gets drowned out. If we haven't trained ourselves to listen to him, then we get swayed by all the noise that is coming at us from every other way. How do we attune ourselves? Well, it starts with focusing and spending time in the Word of God. It starts with having good and godly conversations with our brothers and sisters in the church family. And of course, it requires time in prayer. So as a people who form this body of believers, this church, I believe it is critical for us as individuals to foster that relationship with the Holy Spirit, to train ourselves to hear Him speak to us so that when we come together as a church, we know what His will is for all of us. Francis Chan also says this, the church becomes irrelevant when it becomes purely a human creation. We are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. That is not how a church is supposed to operate. Well, let's look at the, these seven churches. And I'm going to go to second, uh, second church that's listed in Revelation. We're going to go to Smyrna first. Smyrna was uh, one of the two churches that was not rebuked by Jesus Christ, was commended for what, uh, what their faith story was like. The Smyrna church was a persecuted church. They were persecuted because under the Roman emperor, Every year, the church had to make a declaration. They had to make a proclamation. They either had to say, Jesus is Lord, or they had to say, Caesar is Lord. And this church, year after year, would make the proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And for that reason, they were persecuted. And even though they enjoyed fellowship within their church body, outside, they faced adversity and hate-filled hostility. You know, the choice to say Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord has not really gone away. It is still a choice that we face today. Churches in the last 2,000 years and even more today are presented that choice. And when they make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, they experience persecution and escalating aggression. 
Just two Sundays ago, on Easter Sunday, we witnessed church bombings in Sri Lanka. That, that hit the news. What did not hit the news was that two months prior to that, Christians in Nigeria were being massacred uh, by Muslim extremists. 130 Christians murdered in a span of less than two months. Persecution of Christians is a fact of our modern history. It is happening all over the world. And so the question for us as a church is, are we ready to suffer and be persecuted for the name of Christ? The fact is that there will be persecution in Canada against Christians. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. The regulatory, political, legal changes in our nation are slowly taking away the ability of churches to really serve their communities and to do what they're called to do by the Lord. We caught a glimpse of this last year when Christian organizations or, or charitable organizations had to agree with a statement that the government issued in order to be uh, eligible for receiving funding for summer students. And many, many Christian organizations that chose not to agree lost their opportunity to hire students and lost the opportunity to serve their community. Changes like this are just the tip of the iceberg, and there's more on the way. Persecution is coming, and the question for us is if we are ready and willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. The second church is the church in Pergamon, or Pergamon as well. This church gives us the lesson that we ought to be ready to defend our faith against other faiths. I already referenced the fact that Canada is now a multi-faith society. Uh, in the past, Christianity was a cornerstone of our culture, of our society, of the Western civilization. When the society operated according to Judeo-Christian model, our moral code, our judiciary, our academic institutions, our government looked to the church for establishing the moral compass of the society, but that's not the case anymore. The society in which we live has opened its door to pluralism and acceptance of all faiths. Pluralism is not a bad value, by the way, as long as everyone is treated the same way. And no better light to shine for the gospel than when it's put up against all the other religions that are not true religions. And yet we all know that Christianity does not get dealt the fair hand that everyone else does. Christian prayer has been gone from the schools, from our public schools, for a long time. You know what's ironic is that you cannot give a Bible to a child in a public school, but you can give Bibles to inmates in penitentiaries. You know, if, I think if we started giving out Bibles in the schools, maybe the number of inmates in penitentiaries might go down. But that's the society and that's the culture we're in. So how is the church to prepare? How are we to prepare? I think first and foremost, we need to understand what our faith is. We have to have a good, deep understanding of our own faith. And it comes with spending time in the Word. It comes with listening to good teaching. It comes with spending time with other believers, other mature believers. We need to know that what we believe is really true. We need to be able to defend our faith ourselves. And so that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to do, I think, is to become more knowledgeable about other faiths. 
And I'm not suggesting that we all go out and get PhDs in world religions or anything like that. But we need to understand what other worldviews and other isms and other faiths believe so we can have an intelligent conversation. Why is Christianity different from Islam? If you speak to a Muslim, they will tell you that they believe in Jesus. What they won't tell you is that they, won't believe, they don't believe that he is not the son of... They, don't, they believe he's not the son of God. They believe he was just another prophet who pointed the way to their prophet, to Muhammad. What is difference with, different between Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and any other faith that exists in the world? We need to be prepared to have an intelligent conversation. And one of the ways that I think is really valuable is to actually develop friendships with new believers who have come from a different faith background because they can tell you exactly what the difference is, what attracted them to Christ, and what led them away from their original faith. The third church is the church at Thyatira. Now this church teaches us that we must be ready to stand against false teaching within the church. The church in Thyatira was probably the most corrupt of all of these seven churches. Christians in this city were also under incredible pressure to conform to the worldly standards. It was a trade union town, so in order for you to earn a living, you had to be part of a trade union. And many times, when these trade unions got together for their monthly chapter meetings or whatever, they were often orgies and, and tons of drinking and activities that a Christian would disagree with or would not be comfortable with. And if they did not participate in these, then they would lose their jobs because they could not be a part of that union anymore. Now that was okay because as a church, we are under persecution. The problem with the Thyatiran church was that their leaders, and especially this one woman, Jezebel, was teaching the church that it was okay to participate in those activities with the trade unions. Her mantra was, business is business, and God will understand. You've got to make a living. You've got to participate in your professional association. It's okay for you to do it. God will overlook what you're doing. The church leader was leading the flock astray, and the flock was following her blindly. I think this is one of the greatest weaknesses of the Western church, of the modern Western church, a lack of discernment in what is being preached from up here. The lack of discernment also includes the acceptance of teachings that appear holy but are actually very, very contradictory to the biblical teachings. For instance, I hear often from other Christians the practice of meditation. Now, if you are talking about Eastern meditation, it is not the same as biblical meditation. And I'll use this as just one example. In Eastern meditation, you're asked to empty yourself. Whereas in biblical meditation, we are asked to be filled with the Spirit. So unless you are discerning what practices you are engaging yourselves in, you are bound to follow teaching that is not true to the Bible. And so protecting the church from false teaching is not just the responsibility of the pastors or the board, it is the responsibility of everyone who is part of the church. We have to develop discernment. The next church, the fourth church, 
There's a church in Sardis. Now, the church in Sardis teaches us that a church must be alive and vibrant. The church in Sardis, actually, was what someone has called the zombie church. It had all the appearances of being alive, except that it was completely dead on the inside. It had lost the life-giving relationship that a church needs to have with Jesus Christ. It was like a branch that had been severed from the vine, and therefore there was no more life flowing into it. Or it's like a bouquet of flowers that's been cut from the bush days ago, and yet on your dining table or in a vase, it still looks beautiful and it still has fragrance, except that it is not alive. It is dead. It has the appearance of life, but no life at all. A church like this has fantastic programs to serve the community, great concerts on Sunday mornings instead of worship services, and a preacher that is the greatest showman on earth. But there is no substance to the worship that this church has. There is nothing worth depending upon in this church that affects your eternity. And unfortunately, in the Western world, for sure, there are many churches where the pastor is like a rock star or a motivational speaker or a self-help coach who gives a pep talk on Sunday morning and people are pumped up and then they go out and there is no transformation. There is no exposition of the Word of God or, or listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, by all appearances, these churches appear alive, but they are, in fact, dead. dead. A vibrant church that is alive is strongly connected to Jesus Christ. The body is connected to the head who is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the life that flows through the body. A.W. Tozer said this, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everyone would would know the difference. Ouch. That's harsh. Would that be the case for White Ridge Baptist Church? If the Holy Spirit came to us after the service and said, I'm done with White Ridge, what will happen to our children's ministry? What will happen to life path and life groups and preaching and singing that we do in the mornings? Will it just be show? Will the children's ministry just be a daycare center? while the parents are in this room enjoying a concert and getting a pep talk? I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that's the case. And I pray that the ministry of this church is never going to be what Sardis was about, that there is life in this church and that that life can only come when we are connected to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is flowing through people who call this church their home. The next church is the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was uh, the second church that was not rebuked by Jesus Christ. And Philadelphian church teaches us to endure patiently. It teaches us to keep on going, keep on doing the work that God has given us, even though we may not see any rewards at all. I believe this is a trait that our church will have to develop as we see greater hostility, greater resistance, to the ministry of this church, we will just have to continue to do what we're called to do. 
The last church before we go, to back, go back to Ephesus is the church in Laodicea. The Laodicean church was a wealthy church, and if there's one metaphor I can use, in Star Trek there is this mirror universe where every character is backwards in the mirror universe. I think the Laodicean church is the mirror universe church for Smyrna. They were both under the same Roman emperorship. It was, it was Emperor Domitian who proclaimed himself God while he was still alive. Typically, they waited for the emperor to die before they made him God, but he said, no, I'm good enough. I'll be, I'll be God right now. He called himself a God, and then anyone who would not hail him as God was persecuted and martyred. And in case of the Smyrna church, they chose persecution. In case of the Laodicean church, they chose to do the opposite. They compromised. They compromised and gave in to acknowledging the emperor as their god. And their desire to maintain material wealth outweighed their commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, what's really troubling about Laodicea is that they thought they were a good church. They thought they were a self-righteous church, and they were doing well, except that Jesus had a different view of them. He called them wretched, he called them pitiful, he called them poor, while they proclaimed themselves to be rich and wealthy. You know, what's, other, what's the other troubling part about Laodicean church is that unlike other churches, Jesus does not say to the Laodicean church, hold fast to what you have, which is the teaching that they had received. I wonder if this is because the church was so far gone that the only place for them to start was at repentance. How do we compromise as a church? Where do we choose to make something else, Lord, instead of Jesus Christ? You know, not all compromises have to be at the SNC level in scale. It could be the grocery store testing produce before we buy it, or media choices that we make, what we watch, what we listen, what we listen to, what we read. And repeated compromises erode our resistance to temptation and sin, which directly affects our relationship with Christ, and it affects the effectiveness of our ministry. And the last church, the first one, Ephesus, got all kinds of commendations from Jesus, and yet Jesus says, you have forsaken your first love. And the lesson for us is that as a, as a biblical church, we must never forsake our first love. That's what the Ephesian church did. Their foundation was on Jesus Christ, but they had somehow forgotten that to the extent that Jesus was no longer their first love. He was not part of their planning. He was not part of their leadership. He was not part of their discussions. He was not the one leading them at all. So Jesus calls them to repent and go back to the basics, to do what they were doing when the church was founded. But here's the harshest sentence of all of all the churches. In case of the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, if you do not repent, then I will remove your lampstand from its place. Some of the commentators say it means that their ministry will be no longer effective. I think I have a slightly stronger view on that. I think removal of the lampstand means that that church is no longer worthy to be called a church. It's been removed from the group of the seven churches because it is no longer a church 
It is not spreading the light, which is the purpose of a lampstand. And so if there is one final lesson that we can learn from all of these seven churches, it is our first foundational truth. A biblical church must be absolutely clear about the divinity of Jesus Christ and must be in submission to his lordship. The identity of the church is rooted in Jesus Christ. He is called, we are called the family of God. We're called children of God. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the body of Christ. Who we are is defined by who Jesus is. In fact, how we speak of Jesus, how we think of Jesus, how we worship him, how we exalt him, it all demonstrates whether we are a truly biblical church or not. And so as a church, it is critically important for us to have a clear understanding of who he is. Is Jesus a friend? Yes, yes, he is. But he is so much more. Is he a teacher? Yes, he is. But he is so much more. Is he a healer? Yes, he is. But he is so much more. Is he a prophet? Yes, he is. But he is so much more. Who is this Jesus? James Stewart is a Scottish theologian who wrote this about Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing all the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last, himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality." End quote. Ravi Zacharias refers to, it, refers to this as a contrariety, the existence of two mutually exclusive characteristics in one person. So in Jesus Christ, we see the joining of that which is impossible to be joined. Two mutually ex exclusive characteristics, all existing in perfect harmony in the person of Jesus Christ. He is eternal, but he confined himself to a temporal life. He was sinless, but became the sin bearer for all of us. The cattle on a thousand hills belonged to him, but he was born in a manger. He is a refuge for the homeless, but he became homeless when his family fled to Egypt. He is called the son of David, but David called him my Lord. He was the healer whose blood was shed. He raised the dead, but he submitted himself to death on the cross. His dead body was placed in a tomb, but the tomb is empty and he is alive. He is fully man and he is fully God. What is this mystery? And who is this Jesus? You know, Rachel did have something 
to do with going to the entire Bible for this morning. And one of the things you find consistently is that Jesus is present from Genesis to Revelation. You know, in Genesis, he is the creator God. In, in Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the one who leads. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army and the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the king, kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's all in one. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. In 2 Samuel, he's king of grace and love. In 1 and 2 Kings, he's the reigning king and a ruler greater than Solomon. In 1 Chronicles, he's the son of David that is coming to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he's the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he's the priest who proclaims freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one who restores what is torn down. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's the Lord who is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he's the lover and the bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant, the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, and more. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he's the ever faithful one. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man and the one who brings life to dead bones. In Daniel, he's the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, and he's a stranger in the fire with us. With us. He's the ancient of days, the everlasting God who never runs out of time. He, in Hosea, he's the husband who is faithful even when we are unfaithful. In Joel, he's a baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's a burden bearer. In Abediah, he is the judge of all those who do evil. In Jonah, he's a forgiving God. In Micah, he casts our sins and remembers them no more. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he's a great evangelist crying for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the restorer of the remnant. In Haggai, he's a cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he's the pierced son, the Lord of hosts. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who brings healing. And then he becomes man and comes and lives with us. And this is what the New Testament says about him. In Matthew, he's Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah who is king. In Mark, he's the miracle worker, the Messiah who is a servant. In Luke, he is the son of man and the Messiah who is a deliverer. In John, he is the son of God and the Messiah who is a God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the ascended Lord. In Romans, he is the justifier and the righteousness of God. In First and Second Corinthians, he is power and love of God. In Galatians, he is the one who sets us free. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he's the God who meets our every need. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's our comfort in the last days, the soon coming King. In First and Second Timothy, he's the savior of the worst sinners. In Titus, he's our blessed hope. In Philemon, he's the friend who's closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's the blood that washes away our sins. In James, he's the great physician. In First and Second Peter, he's our hope in time of suffering. In First, Second, and Third John, he's the source of all fellowship. He's God God in flesh and he's source of all truth. In Jude, he's God our Savior. And wait till you get to Revelation. This is where it all comes together. In Revelation, he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the Almighty. He's the Son of Man. He's the Living One. He's the Son of God. He's the one who searches hearts and mind. He's holy and true. He holds the key of David. What he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no man can open. He's the Amen. He's the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for he created all things, and by his will they were created and have their being. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the lamb that has been slain. He is faithful and true. He is the rider of the white horse. He is the word of God. He is Christ our Lord. He is the Lord God of holy prophets. He is the root and the offspring of David. He is the bright morning star. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's who Jesus Christ is.
And if we ever have anything to do with Jesus and we take a view that is limited, then what Jesus presents is presented as in the Bible, then we are not worthy to be called a church. We might as well take the cross down at the front. We might as well stroke off the word church from our name and just call ourselves a social club. If we have any view of Jesus Christ that is less than how the Bible presents him, we are not worthy to be called his body. I pray that that will never happen and that we will always remember that Jesus Christ is our first love. You know, our love for Jesus Christ is just a response of his love for us. And his love is demonstrated in the table that is set before us. It is a table that reminds us that he came and died for our sins. In a moment, we'll take communion, we'll receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and it is a reminder that we were sinners and we were loved by God. We were loved so much that he came, became a man, lived among us, bore our sins, was persecuted, died on the cross, and was raised again. I want to give an opportunity to anyone. It will be naive for me to assume that everyone sitting in this room has a personal relationship with Christ. And so the time we take to, to receive communion, I want to give you an opportunity and an invitation to come to Christ, to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It is never too late. His love is always open and always available. His sacrifice is sufficient and more than sufficient for all your sins. We're going to ask uh, the servers to pass the communion. Uh, I'll just pray for that, and then we can start. Lord God, we are thankful to you. We are so unworthy to come to this table, and yet you invite us as your children, as your body, to remember your great sacrifice for us. Lord, as we receive this, I pray that you'll be opening our hearts to your great love. And Father, I pray that anyone who's never made a decision to accept you as their Savior, that your Holy Spirit will open their heart and that they will open their eyes and mind and heart and accept you as their Savior today. We pray in Jesus' name.